You are listening to Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to tune in today. Hey, I'm excited to have back on the program today uh, my guest, Mr. John Tamney. Uh, many of you probably recognize John's name. He is a Forbes columnist. He is the VP at FreedomWorks, and he has a new book coming out talking about political parties. It's titled, They're Both Wrong. He's also got a book that has been out not all that long, Why Robots Won't Take Your Job and Will Help You Get One You Love. I know you're going to like John's perspective, and John will be joining me in segments two and three of today's program. I also want to point out that we do have a weekly newsletter that is titled Portfolio Watch. The newsletter is free. It's delivered via email. All you have to do if you'd like to become a subscriber is visit retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. That website, again, is retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. And you can sign up for the Portfolio Watch newsletter by simply giving us your name and email address. And then every Monday at 5, shortly after market close, we will deliver to you that week's issue of the newsletter. We will not relentlessly send you emails. We'll send you one email per week, and we will not share your information. So if you would like to get our newsletter, just visit retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. Give us your name and email, and we'll be glad to sign you up for the Portfolio Watch newsletter. Now, if you've been a longtime listener to the program, you know that I often like to put forth a forecast for stocks and for gold using the Dow to gold ratio. Now, if you look at what stocks have done, in nominal terms, stocks are much higher today than they were 20 years ago at the turn of the century. What do I mean by that? Well, as I am recording this week's program, the Dow is up to north of 29,000. That's a much higher number than we saw 20 years ago. So when the number is higher, we say that stocks are up nominally. However, you often hear people, pundits, analysts say that in real terms, stocks are not up as much. Well, what does that mean? It means that adjusted for inflation or adjusted for the purchasing power of the currency, stocks are not up as much in real terms. And the simple fact is that as the dollar buys less, as prices at the grocery store go up, it also drives up the price of stocks on a nominal basis. Inflation raises the price of everything. Things you have to buy as well as asset prices. And that certainly is the case with stocks. So the Dow to gold ratio is simply the best way that I know of to adjust for the value of stocks in real terms. Now, if you take a look at where the Dow to gold ratio is presently, and you calculate this ratio by taking the value of the Dow Jones Industrial Average and dividing it by the price of gold per ounce. 
So if you take 29,000 and you divide by about 1550, you come up with a Dow to gold ratio of about 18.4. Now, why do I use the Dow to gold ratio? Well, the simple reason is that historically speaking, gold has always been money. You can go back to ancient Egypt over 5,000 years ago, and gold and precious metals were used as a medium of exchange. They were used in commerce. And interestingly, an ounce of gold 5,000 years ago had exactly the same value, exactly the same intrinsic or tangible value as an ounce of gold today. In other words, over 5,000 years, the characteristics of gold have not changed. An ounce of gold has not changed. And when I talk about this Dow to gold ratio presently being at 18.4 and give you my forecast, you're going to say, wow, Dennis, that's really out there. That Dow to gold ratio, in my view, is likely to reach a level of two or even one. So what does that mean? It means that the Dow would have to drop to 15,000 and gold would have to rise to 7,500. At a ratio of one to one, maybe the Dow would be at 10,000 and gold would be at 10,000. Now, I know that seems far out presently, but when you look at this from an historical perspective, it's really not all that far out because markets typically move from one extreme to another over long periods of time. And the last extreme saw the Dow to gold ratio exceeding 40. If you go back to the turn of the century, calendar year 2000, the Dow to gold ratio was like at 43. Given that the last extreme was at the high end of the spectrum, and given the current fundamentals relating to stocks and relating to gold, I believe the next extreme will be at the low end of the spectrum. Now, I'm not suggesting that this adjustment in the Dow to gold ratio will occur immediately. I don't think it will. But given the direction that Fed policy seems to be taking, I expect that gold will continue to move higher over time as well as other tangible assets. Now, getting back to the nominal value versus real value discussion, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that gold, silver, and other tangible assets will likely move higher nominally, but probably not much higher in real terms. And again, this nominal value versus real value is a really important concept to understand if you're planning for retirement. If you want to be financially independent in the future, it's important that you incorporate strategies that will allow you to potentially capitalize on this concept. In fact, I believe it could be the most important thing you do to have a bright financial future. Now, if you take a look at gold and you price gold in U.S. dollars, 20 years ago, an ounce of gold sold for about $250. Today, that same ounce of gold, as I just mentioned, sells for more than six times as much. And it begs the question, as I talked about, does that mean an ounce of gold is worth more than it was 20 years ago? And the answer is 
in terms of dollars, in nominal terms, yes, but in real terms, obviously not. It's the same ounce of gold. Gold has not changed. It's still an ounce of gold. It can still make the same amount of rings. What's happened is the U.S. dollar has lost purchasing power. And that's why this Dow to gold ratio, in my view, is such a great tool to use to determine the real value of stocks. Now, I keep going back to calendar year 2000, so let's go back to calendar year 2000. The Dow was at about 11,700 in January of that year. Now, that was, at the time, incidentally, a record high. At that time, gold was selling for about 270. So that's a Dow to gold ratio, as I mentioned previously, of about 43. So in other words, it took 43 ounces of gold to buy the Dow back then. Today, it takes 18 ounces of gold to buy the Dow. The Dow to gold ratio in 2000 was 43. Today, the Dow to gold ratio is just over 18. So now, so now when you look at it from that perspective, what might one conclude about the price of stocks? The conclusion, if you think about it, is stock prices are higher in nominal terms, but they are lower in real terms. In fact, 43 ounces of gold to buy the Dow 20 years ago, if you had that same 43 ounces of gold today, you could buy the Dow about 2.3 or 2.4 times. So stocks are higher in nominal terms when priced in U.S. dollars, but when priced in real terms using gold, stocks are lower. Now, I happen to be of the opinion that this is due almost entirely to the monetary policies of the Federal Reserve. Now, you hear analysts talk a lot about the Fed's balance sheet. The Fed's balance sheet in calendar year 2000 was about less than half a trillion. Today, it's more than four trillion. So the Fed's balance sheet is nine times greater. Now, how does the balance sheet of the Fed expand? Well, it's simple. The Fed creates money to buy assets from member banks. And they've been doing this again in earnest. So I believe that that activity is driving up stock prices, but it will also drive up gold prices, and eventually the Dow to gold ratio will narrow. Now, I'll talk more about this in the last segment of today's program, but if you're just joining us, let me remind you that you can visit retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. That's retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, and you can get more information about our upcoming educational events, and you can also subscribe to the Portfolio Watch newsletter. The Portfolio Watch newsletter is delivered every Monday at 5. We don't share your information. We don't send you relentlessly tons of emails. We simply send you the newsletter once a week and give you information that we think is important that we hope you can use. So again, if you'd like to subscribe to the newsletter, just visit retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. I'll be back after these words with my special guest this week, Mr. John Tamney.
Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. I am joined on today's program by returning guest, John Tamney. Uh, John is the Vice President at FreedomWorks. Uh, his uh, book, uh, most recent book, is The End of Work, uh, Why Robots Won't Take Your Job and Might Get You One You Love. And he has got a book that is just about to be released titled They're Both Wrong. And John, welcome back to the program. Hey, Dennis, thank you so much for having me on. So, John, um, they're both wrong. Who are they? <laughs> uh, Republicans and Democrats. And, but really more what I mean by that is they're both wrong because anyone who wants to use policy to fix what they presume to be societal ills uh, gets it wrong by presuming policy, uh, particularly national policy. Uh, Jeff Bezos is the richest man in the world, uh, but he freely acknowledges that just about every experiment he tries as he tries to grow Amazon fails. Uh, Bill Gates felt the same, experienced the same with Microsoft. The difference is, is when they made and make mistakes, they're felt in Seattle. Uh, when politicians presume to foist on us national policy, their inevitable mistakes hurt everyone. And so I'm trying to get people to realize that, A, if you look at the deeply held views of both sides, they're not always correct. And precisely because they're not correct, we should confine policy to what the founders wanted, cities and states, let people choose their policy bliss, let the experiments happen locally, um, rather than, than, than rolling out national policies where if, if they err, and invariably they will, we all suffer. And, and John, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading your book. But you know what? So often, when the at the federal level policy is implemented, and then later finds out, you know, we find out that it's not working so well. It seems like we create these bureaucracies that don't go away when when policies fail. They just kind of layer on more bureaucracy. Oh, that I mean, that's so right. Uh, think about it. With any other business in in, a, in the business world, you're rewarded by rushing to your mistakes, fixing them right away. And you're also rewarded by shrinking the amount of people you need to conduct whatever uh, business you're, it is you're trying to conduct. Compare that with government. Every time a policy fails, the response is just to throw more money at the problem. And as you, as you state so clearly, uh, just to add to the bureaucracy. And so we create something that's impossible to shrink um, and we do so while also constantly growing it. And so uh, the result for, result for all of us is the exact opposite of what you get from businesses. Businesses are rewarded by fixing their mistakes. In government, you're rewarded just by growing around your mistakes. So this this whole uh, this whole path that we're on, you know, on a, on a, on a, on a federal level, uh, when you look at uh, the economics of Social Security and Medicare and the fact that uh, I think both sides just agreed to a uh, – uh, I don't think it's been signed yet as we're recording this, but they agreed to a deal to, to fund the government, but it involves like $340 billion in new spending. I mean, it's just more money that we don't have. How do you see this playing out? How do you see this ending? I mean, this trajectory obviously can't be sustained. Well, you know, it might my, my answer may surprise you, and this is one of the things that, that's in the book. Let me be clear. I want to shrink federal spending every which way possible, but I reject the notion that it's money we don't have, um, as evidenced by the fact that the investors line up to lend to the U.S. Treasury at 2% rates. It's a sign that investors think we've got endless amounts of money, and worse, that we'll have quite a bit more in the future. 
Um, compare this, you know, in 1980, the, the federal budget deficit uh, total debt was what, what close to $1 trillion. Today, it's $23 trillion, and that doesn't factor in all the unfunded liabilities. And yet, uh, the borrowing costs have plummeted from 11% to under 2%. And so what does that tell you? It tells you the federal government collects way too much in the way of revenues, and worse, that it will collect exponentially more revenues in the future. That's why they're able to borrow so much. And so the paradoxical truth is that if we're worried about deficits, and I think deficits um, are, are the wrong focus, the focus should be on the total dollar spent, not how Congress gets it. But if we're worried about deficits, the only answer is to massively shrink the amount of dollars flowing to Washington so that investors won't be so eager to lend to uh, the U.S. Treasury. So, John, when you when you talk about investors lining up to buy U.S. government debt, um, to what extent do you think that is attributable to the fact that, you know, there's 17 trillion dollars in sovereign debt worldwide yielding negative interest rates? I mean, it seems like loaning money to the United States is uh, practically the only place to get a positive yield at this point. Um, it's a good question, but uh, look, I, I think the reason yields are so low on U.S. debt is once again because the U.S. is backed by the most productive people on earth. Um, now, the negative yielding debt, it's really interesting. There's no such thing as negative interest rates. No investor buys an investment vehicle uh, with an eye on getting less back in the future. And so when you look at that debt, uh, who owns it? Um, of that 17 trillion central banks own it, um, pensions, as do insurance companies. Uh, all three entities owing their existence to varying degrees to the federal government. And so it's a non-market phenomenon. And it's got to be stressed that even central banks have a limit to how much of this they can buy. Same with insurance companies that get so much protection from government. Same with pension funds that basically have requirements about what they what they buy, what kind of debt they can hold. And so, um, in in the uh, so going back to the to the U.S. Treasury, no, I just think it's backed. But if you're backed by incredibly productive people. I don't think it's a problem. And that's why I'm always reluctant to say, oh, we can't afford this. If it suddenly becomes about what the government can afford, it can borrow uh, It can borrow enormous sums of money. It's time we start saying the more important thing is, you know what? There's nothing in the Constitution that allows the federal government to spend in this area. And oh, by the way, it's not necessary. The private sector will handle whatever problem the government's trying to 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 meet uh, much much better and much more cheaply. Well, if you're just joining us, we are chatting today with Mr. John Tamney. John is the vice president at FreedomWorks. Uh, we've been chatting a bit about his uh, book that will be released soon called "They're Both Wrong." And uh, John, you had a book that I believe was released last year. Correct me if I'm wrong. Titled "The End of Work." Why Robots Won't Take Your Job and Might Get You One You Love. And, you know, I was reading an article recently about uh, 5G and artificial intelligence, and it seems like uh, there are huge huge strides being made in that area. And uh, the, the very title of your book uh, runs maybe counter to what uh, a lot of people would consider to be intuitive, that, you know, all this artificial intelligence, all these robots, it's going to mean that there are fewer jobs. Can you comment? Yeah, well, it's it's going to mean uh, if if uh, robots and AI achieve their potential, the nature of work is going to change, and it's going to be a beautiful thing. 
these robots won't put us out of work. They're just going to make us fall in love with work simply because we'll automate away the worst aspects of work. And we'll be able to focus on the things that we enjoy. Uh, you know, let's never forget that it used to be that just about all human endeavor was directed toward the creation of food. And it wasn't very effective, effective as evidenced by how many people starved, as, as evidenced by how the, the short lifespans, um, as evidenced by the line that was so constant, too many mouths to feed. And so thank goodness for tractors and backhoes and fertilizer. They were the, arguably the initial robots, and they were the biggest job destroyers in history. But did they put the, the world into bread lines? No, they freed all these people who'd historically had their talents suffocated by the need to just create food. And so they were able to focus on curing mm. diseases, creating the automobile, the airplane, uh, you know, creating the computer, becoming math teachers, becoming uh, cooks, chefs, entertainers, you name it. And so it's so exciting to think what will happen. If we can automate away more, think of all the diseases we can cure. Think of how much better our living standards will be if human endeavor can be be focused on 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 more interesting things and on the work that we really want to do. So, John, moving ahead, what industries do you see being most impacted by the development of of robots and uh, and more automation? Well, if I knew exactly, I always like to say I'd be a billionaire, but here's how I see. So I can't say exactly what the jobs will be, but I have a guess. Um, I think very clearly because of all this automation that we are headed for a four-day work week, Uh, that more and more it will be that people are earning quite a bit more money working fewer days a week. And so businesses to attract the best talent will offer four-day, three-day work weeks. And so how I see this playing out in terms of jobs is that we were once an agricultural economy, then thankfully we moved away from that, then we, we, get, we became a manufacturing economy. Thankfully, a lot of that work was automated. And so we've become, we're now a service economy. My guess is that the next economy that will be on the cover of magazines, they'll be talking about the entertainment economy. So many people work making big amounts of money working three and four days a week, and so they'll suddenly have enormous amounts of free time and disposable income. And so they'll be buying personal training. They'll be buying cooking classes. They'll be buying uh, more movies to see, more hotels to go to, more ways to be entertained with all of their free time. And so I think you're going to see more and more people get to do for a long time job for a lifelong work, what they loved growing up doing as kids. And we're seeing that already. Um, there are at least 20,000 Fortnite coaches in the United States, a video game. Uh, more and more people earn money by quite literally playing video games and posting their games online. And so the entertainment economy is where I see this going. All of life's uh, necessities will have been taken care of by automation. So we'll be able to focus on on doing what we love, curing diseases, wonderful things like that. Well, the clock tells me this segment is uh, just about complete. I will point out to the listeners that I'm chatting today with Mr. John Tamney. Uh, John's uh, forthcoming book is titled They're Both Wrong. We've been chatting with him about his uh, 2018 book, The End of Work, Why Robots Won't Take Your Job and Might Get You One You Love. And we will continue that conversation with John when our LA Radio returns. Stay with us.
I'm Dennis Tuberg, and you're listening to Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. I'm chatting today with Mr. John Tamney. Uh, John is Vice President at Freedom Works. Uh, he is a prolific author. His uh, book to be released very soon is titled They're Both Wrong, uh, both referring to Republicans and Democrats, if you happen to miss the first segment. And uh, he also has a book that was released in 2018 titled The End of Work, um, Why Robots Won't Take Your Job and Might Get You One You Love. And, and, John, to pick up just where we left off in the last segment, if you were giving advice to a college-age or high school-age student today about a, an appropriate career path based on where you see the economy going, what, what words of advice, what words of wisdom would you have for them? Um, my words of wisdom is that happiness is hard. Um, no doubt you could bump into some billionaire on uh, walking the streets one day who could make it possible for you to retire forever. But that billionaire couldn't give you happiness. And happiness comes from hard work. Now, let me be clear. Hard work is not grit. Hard work isn't isn't just doing something that you hate and fighting your, your way through it. I think people who are who are truly hard workers are people who are doing what they love. And so I say it's hard because I think it's hard to potentially find what you want to do. I had to lose a lot of jobs. I've been laid off more than once. Um, I always thought I was lazy. When I worked at Goldman Sachs, I thought all these people work harder than I do. And I thought it's something defective in my character. No, I wasn't lazy. I was just doing the wrong work. Now that I get to be a writer and get to write books and get to come on shows like yours, my capacity for work is endless. And it's nothing for me to write on weekends. It's nothing for me to write late into the night because I'm doing what I love. And so what I would tell kids is, is what's really true. It wasn't true 50 years ago, but it's true now. More and more work reflects what we're really interested in. And so try different work. Figure out what it is that, that, you, wanted, that you could do that you can't get enough of because I guarantee you there are jobs that reflect that. And, and so um, thankfully, not, this isn't true in every country. You couldn't do this in Albania. You couldn't do it in Libya, but you can do it in the United States. And so look long and hard. Be willing to fail. Be willing to be laid off in order to find out what you're good at. So, John, let's shift gears a minute, and in the 10 minutes or so we have left in this segment, let's talk a little bit about uh, the U.S. economy. Uh, we are entering an election year this year, and typically when voters go to the ballot box, one of the things that is top of the list is the U.S. economy. So how would you rate the current health of the U.S. economy? It strikes me that it's pretty good. Um, you know, for all of President Trump's talk of intervening, and I haven't liked it, I think that trade is something that, that presidents and government should have nothing to do with. Overall, he's had interventionist rhetoric, but his actions have been largely non-interventionist. Um, he could have – I wish Republicans had handed him a much bigger tax cut because he would have signed it. But, you know, we had tax cuts. Uh deregulation. There's been a lot more deregulation than regulation. Uh, President Trump has talked a weak dollar. The dollar is weaker, but he hasn't made it a persistent policy thing. Um, and so when people are largely free from lots of activity in Washington, and precisely because President Trump is not liked by the other party, there's thankfully not a lot of policy from Washington, 
when you get that scenario, when you get a polarized Washington, you get lots of economic growth. The, the only barrier to economic growth is governmental. And so I, I guess I can't say I'm terribly surprised by what by, by, by how things have turned about. So, John, you're saying then that um, gridlock is good if you want to grow the economy because the government kind of stays out of the way. Is that what you're saying? Oh, absolutely. You know, um, I keep telling people that uh, I hope that now that both parties have devalued um, impeachment, that this is what happens every time. Because as long as they're grilling each other about things like affairs and uh, bribing a, a foreign government, that means they're not doing things that intervene with our ability to prosper. Um, it's so ironic. I think that impeachment helped Bill Clinton because it shut down Washington in favor of one thing, uh, and he left. He was a successful economic president, non-interventionist presidents, distracted presidents like him generally are. And I think we're going to see the same thing with Trump. Impeachment's been good for the Trump economy because, once again, you can't do a lot of other things if the focus is on removing someone from office. And so um, it, the gridlock is always a good thing simply because the only real persistent barrier to prosperity is government. Otherwise, free people, just def their default stance is to grow and leave them alone, they'll grow. John, when, when uh, you take a look at current Fed policy, it seems that we have uh, QE4 going on. The, the Fed's been uh, uh, intervening and supporting the, the repo market, the overnight lending between banks. Um, what do you read into that, if anything? Um, I think it's largely irrelevant. Um, let's be clear that for Apple, uh, overnight lending is always going to be cheap. Uh, same for Amazon, same for Facebook, same for Google. Um, it's always going to be cheap for J.P. Morgan, but guaranteed for the typical business, if there is an overnight lending market, it's going to be fairly expensive. The Fed can't alter reality. It can only confirm what is reality. And, and that's a good thing. If the Fed were a fraction of, as powerful as economists want us to believe it were, and as, as if it were a fraction as powerful as politicians wanted to believe it were, uh, the U.S. economy wouldn't be worth talking about. The Fed can't change things. It can't increase credit. This idea that it can lower interest rates and make credit more plentiful is laughable. The market for credit is global. If the economy is weakening, the Fed can't change that reality simply because all the other global sources of credit will, will understandably become more more careful about um, how they lend. And let's remember, the Fed doesn't have, when we borrow money, we're not borrowing dollars. We're borrowing what do dollars can be exchanged for, trucks, tractors, computers, desks, chairs, most important of all, labor, labor. The Fed can't increase that. And so I think the focus on it is entirely oversold. And I think it was it's long been a big mistake of President Trump to talk about it too much. Um, pre, why would he insult his the economy that he's presiding over by pretending that it's reliant on what the Fed does. I mean, it's just a big mistake, I think, made by both parties, but uh, Trump in particular. So, John, I've had a number of guests on the program who uh, believe, based on their analysis of where the economy is, that a recession is um, inevitable, maybe not imminent, but within the next uh, 12 to 18 months due to inverted yield curve, due to whatever reason they may put forth, that uh, the economy is uh, due for a pullback. Uh, what's your opinion? Oh, look, if, 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 if I knew as much as these people claim to know, again, I'd be a billionaire. They can't know that. 
Um, let's never forget that recessions are what businesses go through all the time. Uh, successful businesses constantly run to their mistakes to fix them. And that's all a recession is to me. During boom periods, it's understandable that there's that lending's going to be a bit more lax, that investment's going to be a bit more lax, that we're going to take bigger risks because we have the means to do it. Hiring's going to be a lit, bit more lax. So all a recession is, and this isn't to say that they're not painful and worrisome because they are, recessions are merely a sign of, of an economy recovering, of an economy correcting the people. The individuals within an economy correcting bad habits developed, uh, fixing bad mistakes of the loan and investment variety, uh, releasing from their employee employees who probably aren't weren't were never good fits. And so the only worry about a recession isn't the recession. That's just, that's healthy. The worry is that government will intervene in the recession and slow the process whereby we fix what we're doing wrong. For governments to fight recessions is for them to fight recoveries. So I don't fear downturns. I do fear political responses to downturns. John, when you were talking about uh, the Fed and uh, and your view that uh, you know their power is overrated, uh, I think you were on the program earlier and you you wrote a book uh, I think now a few years ago titled "Who Needs the Fed." In the time we have left, do you want to uh, enlighten the listeners as to the topics uh, you cover in that book and your and your view? <laughs> yeah, well, you know my, the, what what I say in the book is look around uh, in Hollywood. Credit is so expensive that just e- even the top uh, movie makers are refused, are refused uh, you know, funds to, to make their movies 90% of the time. In Silicon Valley, credit is so expensive that if, if you want to start up a business, you have to give up a big portion of it, of it to a venture capitalist. Um, Donald Trump, our president, and this isn't a political statement, he went decades where U.S. banks wouldn't touch him. And this is important because the Fed throws around, well, we're going to institute zero rates, zero percent interest rates. And my point in the book is, who gets that? No one gets that. Even Apple, the most valuable company in the world, plays, pays two or three percent to borrow. And so I'm just making the point that the Fed's just not that important. It, it can't alter economic reality. It, it can't make credit cheap. Uh, cre- easy credit is a function of of booming economic growth, nothing the Fed does. And so my book is all about showing people through examples why this view of the Fed is all-powerful and able to create beautiful outcomes is totally divorced from reality. Uh, the Fed can't create happiness. It also can't create misery either. I don't buy that the Fed co- – I discredit in the book the notion the Fed caused the Great Depression. I don't buy the, the, the idea that the Fed could cause a recession now. The Fed projects its well-overstated influence through a U.S. banking system, which just isn't that important to overall economic activity. Well, our guest today has been Mr. John Tamney. I would encourage you to uh, look for his book to be released uh, soon. They're both wrong. John, what is the release date on the book? Do you know? It's, 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 it's basically – you can get it on Amazon right now. The, the only delay is that they put out – strangely enough, new publisher – they put out softback and Kindle before the hardback. The hardback is just now being released. Well, I would encourage you to check it out. I intend to do that. And, uh, John, always a pleasure to chat with you. Love your perspective. And uh, we'll try to catch up with you again in 2020 and get another update. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Dennis. I really appreciate it. We will return after these words. I'm Dennis Tuberg, and you are listening to Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. 
Glad you decided to listen in today, and thanks again to my special guest, Mr. John Tamney, for joining us on today's program. In the first segment of today's program, I talked about measuring the value of stocks by using gold as a measurement. And I talked about the difference between the nominal value of stocks and the real value of stocks. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but if you're just joining us, back in calendar year 2000, the Dow was just under 12,000. It was at 11,700 in the month of January. And that at the time was a record high. Today, the Dow is over 29,000. So you would say that over the last 19, 20 years, the Dow has really performed considerably well. And that is true on a nominal basis because the numbers are up. But when you look at measuring the value of stocks in terms of gold, which has always been real money, the Dow to gold ratio has dropped from 43 in calendar year 2000 to a little over 18 today. So in real terms, Pricing stocks in gold, the value of stocks has not gone up. And as I mentioned at the end of the first segment, one of the reasons for this, in my opinion, is the monetary policies of the Federal Reserve. I mentioned that 20 years ago, the Fed's balance sheet was less than half a trillion. Today, it's well over four trillion, expanded by almost 900 percent. And the balance sheet of the Fed expands when they create money to buy assets from member banks. And more recently, and if you've been listening to the program every week, you know that we've talked about this in the past, the Fed has been injecting liquidity into the repo market, which is simply the overnight lending market between banks. So what does this mean? Well, Simply put, for whatever reason, some banks are not willing to loan money to other banks on an overnight basis. Well, no one knows exactly why. One doesn't have to be a financial genius to conclude that the only reason one would not loan a person or entity money on a short-term basis is because you perceived that there was too much risk to do so. That's what I believe is happening, happening presently. Money is being created to stabilize this overnight lending market. But looking ahead, there are other reasons that I believe the Fed will continue this loose money policy. The biggest reason is the state of the nation's finances and debt levels. This is a problem that I've discussed often here on the program, but the problem continues to get larger. Now, John Malden, in his excellent newsletter, Thoughts from the Frontline, had this to say on the topic this past week. He said, to think that we have somehow eliminated recessions and risk, or that central banks and the government have somehow become adept at managing the business cycle, is simply foolish. Yet, we keep doing it every single time. Malden says that debt seems harmless enough at first, you have reliable cash flow, repayment is no problem, and you're going to spend the borrowed money wisely. But human nature tends to make us overdo otherwise good things. And with debt, you may also have lenders actively urging you to borrow even more. Everything is fine until it's not. 
Personal debt, while sometimes excessive, Malden says, is not the main problem. He said government and corporate debt are the bigger challenge and the reason we will spend the 2020s living dangerously. He also says, accurately in my view, that all that debt is ultimately personal debt too, since most of us are either taxpayers, shareholders, or both. Now, Malden says the next 12 months, he says, in his opinion, will likely be rather benign. In fact, he says the calm may last into 2021 and even beyond, but beneath the surface, pressure will still be increasing. It will grow slowly, almost imperceptibly, but eventually explode. Or, Malden says, to use another metaphor, we are frogs in the kettle and someone just turned on the heat. By the time we notice, our good options will be gone. When there's too much debt to pay, you don't have to be an economic genius to realize that it won't all get paid. Now, to be clear, money creation is not a good option. But given the size of the debt, it's likely the only option that politicians will consider to be viable. In fact, if you listen to the debates, if you have the stomach to listen to the debates, you'll find that no one is talking about fiscal responsibility. So money creation is likely the course of action that policymakers will pursue because the only other two choices are to raise taxes or cut spending. Both are, both are not really very viable politically. Any budget can be balanced by cutting spending. It's easy to do. You just don't spend more than you take in. But the level of cuts that would be required to solve the deficit problem would create a deflationary environment that would be so severe, politicians would be voted out of office in droves. Now, the reality is you simply cannot raise taxes to a level that would be high enough to solve the deficit problem. There's just not enough money in existence. The only other option is money creation, and in my view, that's what will continue to happen. And as more money is created, moving toward tangible assets in your portfolio may be the best way to preserve purchasing power. Now, we talk about this at our educational events. If you've not yet attended one of our educational events, I would encourage you to go check out socialsecuritydinner.com. A list of our events and venues uh, and, and dates uh, are there. Again, socialsecuritydinner.com is the website. We talk about not only how to maximize social security, but we talked about we talk about how to hedge for what we believe is this inev- inevitability in your portfolio. How do you protect yourself from ongoing money creation? Because in any situation, there are certain ways to protect yourself and perhaps even prosper. However, moving ahead, following traditional advice, we believe, will be a sure way to fail. So if you've not yet attended one of our events, I'd encourage you to do that. It's 2020. Set a New Year's resolution to learn something more about your money. After all, no one cares as much about your money as you do. 
The website, again, if you'd like to learn more or register for an upcoming event, is socialsecuritydinner.com. And I'll remind you also that if you have not already done so, you can visit retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, and you can listen to any of these programs at that site. Spread the word. Uh, You can also go to uh, the iTunes store or uh, any podcast location and find Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio in the podcast version as well. That's all the time I have for this week. I will be back again next week. Joining me on next week's program is a very interesting gentleman, Mr. David McIlvaney. Uh, David is uh, really created a program to allow gold to be money again. So I know you'll enjoy my conversation with him. Be sure to tune in again next week. I'll be back. Have a good week.